You'll find today's scripture in the Black Bibles on page 900. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and verses 19 through 22. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 2, starting with verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You may be seated. If you're four years old to second grade, this is when we release you to the herd with the moors this morning. So four years old to second grade, I'm going to pray with pastor and then... Um, Would you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you for this man. Thank you for the work that you're doing in him and through him. Lord, that he is a faithful servant of yours, and he has nothing special but you and the gospel. And Lord, just give him courage and the boldness to proclaim the truth from the scriptures that we've just heard this morning so that we leave here not only with a better understanding but with an application of what our lives should look like being lived out in light of this scripture. We ask all this in Christ's power and Christ's name. Amen. It's good to see you guys. It's been, it's been a little while. Um, real quick before we get started here, I just want to uh, repeat right now, and we'll, we'll repeat. After service today, we have a, a family meeting. Um, and we're going to repeat this information again. Uh, I, I really can't stress just how important this coming Sunday is. Um, if we could turn Christianity to a sport, which some churches do, I don't advocate that, but just for sake of illustration, if we could turn Christianity to a sport, like the Super Bowl of Christianity is this coming Sunday. It's Easter Sunday. It's, it's the reason why we come together and worship. It's the reason why we come together to sing. It's the reason why we proclaim the gospel. It's the reason why we do community group. It's the reason why we pray. It's re I mean, Easter Sunday is it for us. And next Sunday is going to be good. Um, we're going to be talking about the gospel and how it makes us witnesses. We're going to be coming out of a section of Scripture that's just going to flat lay out the gospel. We're going to have a proclamation of the gospel through baptism. We're going to have a proclamation of the gospel through um, a report on our mission trip that we took to the DR. I mean, it's just going to be good. So if you want somebody to hear about the gospel, I mean, they're going to hear it on any given Sunday, but like this coming Sunday is going to be like a really, really, really good Sunday to invite somebody into. And so our challenge for you is this, is this coming week is to think. Like right now, immediately, the person who's coming into your mind, there's a really good chance that this is the person that the Holy Spirit is pressing onto your heart to invite into church this coming Sunday. It doesn't mean they're going to come, but Lord knows they're not going to come if you don't at least extend the invitation. And so my challenge for you is this week is to very, very, very seriously ask God for these two things. We're asking God to just come in power next Sunday. We're going to be talking about the gospel and how it makes us witnesses. We're going to proclaim it through baptism and through a missionary report. The very reason why we go to the ends of the earth is because of the gospel. We're, we're asking that God would show up in a way that is just befuddling almost. Like we don't even know how this stuff is happening, but it's because God is in our midst. We're also going to ask that you guys ask God and pray in this way that the person that you invite 
that God will pull and draw and woo this person into our midst this coming Sunday. I mean, just think about it. How does a person who doesn't give two rips about Jesus actually walk through the doors of a church? It happens in two ways. One, you extending the invitation, but then two, it's not even resting on the power of the invitation. It's resting on the power of the Holy Spirit who empowers the invitation for this person to come and know Jesus. So we're going to be asking you guys this week, I'm going to be sending out some little just messages and things like that, encouraging you to think in this way. Who is a neighbor? Who is a coworker? Who is a family member? Somebody that you can just go, hey man, I love you. Um, and this is really important to me. We still live in a quasi, not even really Christian, but a quasi-religious society to where people will generally go show up to church at least two times a year, Easter and Christmas. So there's even something that's even sort of in your favor in that way. So I just ask you to think. Ask God to say, God, give me one person that I can invite to church this coming Sunday, somebody who does not, like, don't go for the easy one, like grandma who's going to show up here anyway. Right, man, no, grandma's coming. Hey, grandma, you want to come to church on Sunday? It's like, man, grandma's coming already, okay? But think of that one person who just doesn't know Jesus and be asking that God would draw them doing something that is just completely mind-blowing. So we're going to ask you to think in this way and to, to act in this way this week and trust that Jesus would make, make his name great. It's been a good couple of weeks. Sorry that we weren't able to be here on um, this past week. That's why it's good. I don't know how it works for you, but like when you just like when I miss one Sunday um, of just fellowshipping with the saints, I mean that's just like it's sort of like deadening on the soul. But then to miss it for like two in a row, it's just good to see your faces. Um, you guys just you haven't even really said much to me. You're just all staring at me, but like my heart just growing because it's good to see the family of God and to be back in the family in the midst of the family of God again. So thank you for, for being here today. So here's what we're doing. We are, just a little quick catch-up, we are in the middle of a five-part series called The Whole Church. And the basic essence, the nutshell summary of our teaching series is this, that the gospel is good news. The gospel is this, that God is holy, God is sinless. You are not holy, you are not sinless. And that proves to be an immense problem. But the good news of the scriptures is this, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was dead, buried, raised from the dead so that you could have life with God. And the entirety of the scriptures call us to recognize this, that we are far from God, but we need to be brought near to God. And the only way we can be brought near to God is by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the cross. And not only does the gospel... Good news from that past sense of, I have been saved, but it's good news even now in the present. The gospel is not just for salvation, but the gospel is for salvation and for life. The gospel grants you new identities. Because of the gospel, we are now true worshipers of God. Because of the gospel, we are now disciples. That's what John Kleinschmidt preached to you when I was gone that first Sunday. Because of the gospel, we are now servants, and we're freed up to be servants. That's what Brian taught you guys this past week. Today, we're going to turn our attention to this, that the gospel makes us family, draws us into community, draws us into something bigger than ourselves, draws us into the very family of God. The gospel makes us children of God. And then next week, we're going to talk about how the gospel makes us witnesses. These, these identities aren't just true of us so that we can just hold it into us, but the gospel has come to us so then it will go outward from us as we witness and proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ really does save sinners. And we're going to touch on that next week on Easter Sunday. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 2. So go ahead and open up your copy of Scripture. If you don't have a Bible with you, the black hardback Bible's around you, page 900, you'll be able to find Ephesians 2. And what we're going to do is we're going to focus on sections of Scripture at the very beginning of Ephesians 2 and the very end of Ephesians 2. And today we're going to see this, that the gospel makes us family, and our family, Delta Church, is to be all about the gospel. I don't know if you've ever heard of a, a novelist named... Uh, Douglas Copeland. 
but he wrote a, a novel regarding a family. And in, in this novel, he describes his family. Um, but the way he describes his family is actually the title of his book. And the title of his book in regard to families are this. All families are psychotic. All families are psychotic. Then he just builds the story about like the Drummond family, which is just this family that's just really, it's just this insane story about what's going on. And he runs it under the, the thesis of all families are psychotic. Now, most of you are nodding your head or you're at least nodding your head in your, in your heart and in your mind because you're like, listen, man, that is more true than you even know. And the only evidence you need for this is show up to my house like on Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving family when, you know, great uncle Andy and, you know, and Aunt, Aunt Susie is there and, you know, Grandpa Bob. I mean, it's just, it's psychotic. And so you, you're speaking more truth than you know. See, we all have ideas about family. Some of us have good families. Some of us have not so good families. We've all been influenced by other families. Maybe you had a bad family, but your best friend had a really good family, and so it made you long for something good as you saw the way that your friend got to interact with a loving daddy and a, and a caring mommy. Um, a lot of us are influenced by the idea of family from what we see. Television gives us all kinds of snapshots regarding the family. Ward and June Cleaver brings to an idea, family, leave it to Beaver. Mike and Carol Brady, Brady Bunch, not quite as wholesome as the Ward and June, but still, still pretty wholesome. Cliff and Claire Huxtable, we are big Cosby Show fans. We own all eight seasons on the DVD. I got one shout out from my Kentucky loving brother back there. The Cosby Show, fun, good tends to bring to mind this idea of a loving family. Some of us don't come from families like that. Our family is maybe more like Homer and Marge Simpson's family. Peter and Lois Griffin from the Family Guy, maybe that's more like your family. Maybe you grew up in a family where the home was more like Al and Peg Bundy, maybe the Bluth family from Arrested Development. Whether you've watched families on TV whether you've experienced the good and the bad of families, all of us, all of us have an idea of what family is or should or should not be. No matter where you land on the spectrum of, I had a really awesome family to the spectrum of, I would rather not know my family. Your earthly experience with your family has shaped your view of God as Father. There's just no doubt about it. And in regard to the idea of family, we all bring some sort of baggage. Some of us bring good baggage. Some of us bring bad baggage in regard to this idea of family. And because this is true, what we need to do is go, the way that I think about family, the way that I see family and have experienced family, I'm not going to let that negative or positive experience necessarily influence me and make me see God in a certain way. What I want to do is open up the scriptures and go, Okay, according to the scriptures, according to who God is as father and the family that he draws us into, I want the Bible to inform the way that I think about family. We need the gospel to realign the way that we view family. And so today we're going to see these two things from Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to see that the gospel makes us God's children and the gospel brings us into God's family. So when you start reading the scriptures through the lens of family, you see that this is language that the writers of the Bible adopt a lot. Scripture sees things through the lens of family quite often. And so what we're going to see today is this, that there's this vertical aspect of family where the gospel makes us God's children apart from Christ before you were saved, before you were redeemed and brought near to God by the blood of Christ. There's a sense in which you are not a part of God's family. The scriptures say you are not a part of God's family. You're outside of God's family. But the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves sinners has this vertical aspect where it pulls us into God's family and makes makes us sons and daughters of God and makes God our Father. And you're going to see this in, in the first five verses of Ephesians chapter 2. 
So Paul is writing a letter to believers, to Christians in a city called Ephesus. And he's really writing a letter that is just unpacking the glories of salvation. He's talking about this is the role that God the Father had in your salvation. And this is the role that God the Son had in your salvation. And this is the role that the Holy Spirit had in your salvation. Then it leads him into a prayer. And he says, for this reason, in in light of this grandiose, great, glorious truth of what God, the Trinitarian God, has done for you in salvation, I want to pray for you in this way that God may give you spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know that he has called you and that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance and on and on he goes and then he comes to Ephesians chapter 2 and what he seems to be wanting to do for the Ephesians is this, he really wants them to understand just how great their salvation just truly is Peter is going to talk to these believers in Ephesus And he's going to show just how dire their situation really was. And he's going to employ the method of contrast. In the first five verses of Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses are going to be black. They're going to be dark. They're going to be very, very abysmal. Paul is going to plunge to the depths of death only to contrast this to the great life we have in God. He's going to show us that the, carbon, the, the total humanity, everyone is in bondage to sin. No one escapes from this. And he's going to paint a really dark, despairing picture of what bondage to sin actually looks like. He's going to use some very strong and intense language, but he's doing this so he can contrast how glorious the gospel is in light of the reality of our situation apart from Christ. He's going to show us the depths of hell only to show us the heights of heaven. He's going to show us the bad news of sin so that we can see the good news of the gospel. And he's going to do this all through the language of family. So when you look in your copy of Scripture, you look at the first three verses, what you're going to see is this, the despair of sin. Despair is this. This is just absolute hopelessness. To be despairing is to have no hope. And when you read verses 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, it is a picture of just hopelessness. Paul writes this. Read along in your copy of Scripture. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is going to show us four different things from these three verses, and they all revolve around the nucleus of the despair of sin. The first thing he shows us is this, is that humanity is dead. Humanity is dead. When when he says, and you were dead, what he's not talking about is a physical death. The language that he's actually talking about there employs this idea of spiritual, but it actually employs this idea of being a corpse. We are, apart from Christ, spiritual corpses. We're dead. There's no spark of life within us whatsoever. And what Paul is doing is coming to them and saying is this, you have to understand how bad sin actually is because when you are living in sin, yes, you are physically alive, yes, you are doing things that show signs of physical life, but at the heart of hearts, the matter of the truth is this, you are a spiritual corpse. Today in our culture, zombies are everywhere. And there's a sense in which Paul is saying that we are spiritual corpses, but when you look around, what we could do is say the exact same thing, is that we are spiritual zombies. What's the deal with the zombie? They look alive, but they're really dead. And the truth of Scripture is this. When you look around, you go to work, and you see people are all happy. They're laughing. They're having fun. Some are even doing good things. 
But if they're outside of Christ, what looks like life, Paul's actually saying they are actually marked by death. They are spiritual zombies. They are the walking dead spiritually. And this is an absolute statement. This, this isn't just like, well, you know, uh, the people in England are like this, but not Americans. Uh, those Italians, they're like this, but uh, not, not the people in Australia. The Chinese, maybe, but I don't know about the Koreans. No, he's, just saying, he's saying it's just, car, it's just everywhere. This is an absolute statement. It doesn't matter if you're black or if you're white, if you're rich or you're poor, if you're Republican or you're Democrat, if you're American, South American, African, European, it doesn't matter. The phrase that summarizes the entirety of humanity is this, apart from Christ, you are spiritually dead. And how can he say this when he qualifies it this way? You were dead. Look at verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Now, those are words that we don't quite often use. So so what exactly is Paul driving at when he says, you were dead, spiritually dead, cut off, separated from God, and he says, here's two bits of evidence to show how I can say this. Your trespasses and your sins. What does it mean to to think about trespasses? It's It's not a word we just use often. You can think about it in this way. I mean, I remember specifically growing up. I grew up in a little little town in Carrollton, Illinois, and I grew up on on Sixth uh, Street. And if you went several blocks up the road from Sixth Street on a one corner house, there was a, there was an elderly man who had like one of the most immaculate lawns you could ever imagine, and he didn't want people stepping on his grass. So what did he do? Set up a sign that said "No trespassing." He was exerting a command. I am the old man on the corner. I have nice grass, and I don't want you on my grass. I'm, I, he's exerting his will. He is saying this. Here are boundaries. You do not go here. You can go out here. And to make sure you know my command, my will, my desire for you not to come this way, I'm going to make it very clear. I'm going to post a sign that says no trespassing. So now what does every little kid in the entire United States want to do? They read the sign and they want to go like this. They're going to look around and they're going to go. They're going to try to step on that grass. Why? Because of sin. They see a sign that says, oh, this guy doesn't want me to do it. Well, by all means, I'm going to do it. And what he does is in that moment, he's actually trespassing against that senior adult, that older man who has the desire that you don't do that. And when we trespass against God, it's something very similar where God says, because I am good, because I am sovereign, because I am creator, I am setting up a world in which I am telling you it will go good for your soul if you live like this under my rule and reign as a good king. It will go bad for you if you do these things outside of my will. And what we do is we come along and go, God, I've seen everything you said. You basically said, I can do this. Don't trespass over here. But then what we do is go, God, I think my way is obviously better than this. And so what do we do? We trespass against God. We go against his divine commands. Sin, same sort of thing. It's when we go against God and the things that we think and the things that we say and the things that we do. At the heart of heart, the Bible paints this this bleak picture of humanity where we were just full tilt rebels against God because we basically think we're better than God. And for that reason, that makes us spiritually dead. The despair of sin is also this. Paul shows us that humanity is disobedient. Keep reading there in verse 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world. See, the spiritually dead are dominated by the world. They, they walk in line with the world. They follow the course of the world. And when you read this little word, world, in the Scripture, it's not just talking about like green grass and sky and mountains and birds and sunshine and valleys and these sort of things. The, the, the theological category for world in the Scriptures is this. It's just the way of sinners who just say it's a mindset, it's a spirit, it's a, it's a hard attitude that says, I am going to do everything in opposition to God. And when you read that, those who are dead in their trespasses, humanity being dead, it leads to them being disobedient. 
They love to follow and live out their lives in the arena of life that is just in complete hostility to God. And not only is humanity dead and is humanity is disobedient, but humanity is dominated by the demonic, actually. Continue reading in, in verse 2. You once walked in this way, he's telling these Ephesian believers. You used to follow the course of this world. But not only that, you followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Humanity is dominated by the demonic. So when you, when you think about Satan and you think about his ways and the ways in which the Bible describes him, often his names give us a little clue as to what he's about. When you go and you read the scriptures, Satan is described as the ruler of this world in John chapter 12. He's described as the prince of demons in Matthew chapter 9. He's described as the God, lowercase g, God of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And here Paul comes along and describes him as a prince, the prince of the power of the air. The idea really is this, that, that Satan is really trying to rip off. He's a faux prince. The prince of peace has followers, and these people listen to what the prince does. And then Satan comes along as a faux prince. He doesn't have real power, real authority. He has, he has limited power. He's got limited authority. It's, it's limited to this world. It's limited to these people who are following the course of the world and these people who are spiritually dead, what they do is they go, let us rally around a leader. And Paul says their leader is the prince of this world, the prince of darkness, the, the god of this age, the prince of demons. And the masses of spiritually dead, those who are outside of Christ, follow lockstep in accord with their prince. And this makes them sons of disobedience. Jesus employs something similar to this. When you are spiritually dead, you have a daddy. When you are outside of Christ, you've got a father. And according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, your daddy, your father is the prince of the power of the air. You live for him. You seek to do his will. You do his commands just by the simple fact of not being in Christ. Paul's starting to use this familial language, this family language. Jesus punks out some of the religious leaders in John chapter 8 when he's talking about before Abraham was, I am. And the, and the people that he was talking to, the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, they didn't like Jesus saying that because basically that was Jesus making a claim to deity. And they're saying, listen, you know, you're like not even older than 50 years. Like Abraham was like 2,000 years ago. How in the world can you say before Abraham was, I am? And he's like, because I'm sent from God, because I am actually God. And they're like, well, that's a load of baloney. And he says, well, if you were to listen to me and actually trust me, you would prove yourself to be the sons of God, the sons of Abraham that you're claiming. But you actually have another daddy. You are actually the son of the devil, which didn't really go, go well for that conversation. When you call religious people who think they're right with God, actually God's not your father, Satan is your father, that never really goes well. But it was the truth. They thought they were spiritually alive by the simple fact of being religious. And Jesus says religion does not save you, bro. It's the grace of God that saves you. It's the gospel that saves you. And here is the gospel of God, the good news of God. You're staring at his face. And they didn't get it. And there they go, marching, following, lockstep in order with the prince of the power of the air. Fourthly, Paul shows us in these first three verses that humanity, because of these realities, is destined for destruction. Look in verse 3 in your copy of Scripture. Paul writes, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here he is. He's saying this. When you are spiritually dead because you are delighting to walk in a way that is in full tilt rebellion against God, when you delight to align yourself with this world which is against God, when you are pleased to give your allegiance to the prince 
of the power of the air. This makes you a son of this prince. And then he employs another language and basically says like this, by nature, this makes you a child of wrath. And there again is more family language. To be spiritually dead is to be, by nature, a child of wrath, a son of disobedience, a follower of the prince of the power of the air. And Paul lays out this bleak, very dark picture in verses 1 through 3, and praise be to God that he doesn't end there. So what is Paul going to do now? Because he's just said this, humanity apart from Jesus... Humanity is Christless, it is hopeless, and it is godless. This is a picture of the despair of sin. But the good news of the gospel is this, and Paul, like a door, turns on its hinge, turns into the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel isn't good news unless you see yourself in verses 1, 2, and 3. And that's why he goes there. Notice Paul doesn't come around and is like, hey, listen, good news, God's rich in mercy and he loves you because we already think that already. Like, I'm just really lovable. Like, why wouldn't God love me? But Paul's painting a picture here. No, the good news of the gospel is good because the bad news of sin is true of you. When you look in the mirror, verses 1, 2, and 3 are true of you. You are a son of disobedience when you are apart from Christ. You are, by nature, a child of wrath if you are apart from Christ. And the truth, the reality of what Paul is saying in these three verses is meant to be like a dagger, like a surgeon's scalpel that comes and lays open our heart to the realities that we are in rebellion against God and we need somebody, something outside side of us to come and change our hearts. And for Paul, he turns right to that reality with two glorious words. Look in verse 4. You were dead in trespasses. You once walked in sin, followed the course of this world, followed the prince of the power of the air. You are a son of disobedience and the passions of the flesh, by nature a child of wrath, but God but God. That little word, but there, means this, that verses 1, 2, and 3 are not the period on what the reality is for you if you are apart from Christ. But God speaks this reality into your world right now. God is the one who has the power to bring you from death into life. But God, the hope of grace is this, The gospel makes us God's children, and it happens by God's initiative. I mean, who is this God? So so if you're just reading these verses here, and you come and you read three verses of just dire, abysmal, bleak reality, then all of a sudden Paul comes in and goes, but God, then I want to know who is he talking about? Like, what is so great about this God that you have to go dark, 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 despair of sin, Christless, hopeless, godless, but there's this one who can come in and wipe that stuff out, who has done something to make that no longer the reality of your life and has the power to change you at the very core of who you are. There is one who can do this, and his name is God. I'm going, define him for me. What? characteristics and attributes does God have that gives him the ability and the right to change me in this way? And Paul goes right there. He says, but God. Now let me define this God for you. This God is rich in mercy, rich in mercy, and he is marked by great love with which he has loved us. And that's, that's beautiful. Like, right, Paul could have just said, but God, who's merciful? But no, he's, he's rich in mercy. And he's not stingy with this richness. He's not Scrooge McDuck. Do you guys remember Scrooge McDuck, uh, right? Cartoons, the big money, this big money pit, big money bin. What's he always doing? Diving into it, swimming in a sea of gold coins. I'm like, man, as a little kid, I thought that was great. Then we watched it with our kids. We introduced them to, like, DuckTales. 
And I'm like, man, ain't nobody diving into a bunch of coins. He's going to smack his head, man. He's like diving through it like it's water and stuff. You know, he's just swimming, backstroking, throw the coins. But what was the beef with Scrooge McDuck? He was rich in money, but the brother was stingy. Gee, God is rich in mercy, but he is scandalously free with his mercy. Scandalously free with his mercy. And the beauty is this, is that he is rich in mercy and he is great with love and he extends that love toward us. Now, God's love isn't given because we are lovely. Like God isn't up on heaven looking down and going, man, John Davis, mm, I'd like to have him on my team. Smart, intelligent, witty. No, he doesn't look at He doesn't look like that. See, the danger of reading this verse, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, we go, of course God's like that toward me. I mean, I am, after all, rather lovely, and God should have me on his team. But the reality of God extending his love toward us is actually quite the opposite. God extends his love toward us even when we are very unlovely. Remember verses 1, 2, and 3? There's nothing lovely about that kind of sin-sick rebellion that consumes the heart of humanity, which brings God's creation in full-tilt attack mode against its creator. There's zero lovely about that. It's repulsive to God because his creation wasn't created to be that way. But the reality is this, that God, rich in mercy and great with love, looks upon his creation, his humanity, that is sin-sick, plagued by the leprosy of sin and rebellion against its creator, and says this, but I love them and I'm going to do something to redeem them out of the darkness of sin because they cannot do anything on their own. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, this God, even when we were in full tilt rebellion against our God, even when we were spiritual corpses, living dead, zombies spiritually, cruising this earth, having no desire, no inclination, having nothing to want to do with the Son of God, Jesus Christ, God in love, reaches down into our darkness and makes us alive together with Jesus Christ. The combination of God's rich mercy and His great love means this for you and I. We are brought into God's family as a result. And we, know, we are no longer sons and daughters of disobedience, but we become now sons and daughters adopted through Jesus Christ. Paul says this back in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says this, in love, there's that word again, in love, he predestined us for what? Adoption. The fact that you are in right standing with God as a son and a daughter of God is because of God's great mercy, his rich mercy, and because of his great love. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. See, we are no longer children of wrath, but we are now children of God. The apostle John says it this way in 1 John chapter 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has for us? He's blown away by the love of God, by the mere fact that God in love would look on us even in our unlovely state and would still with love move to have Christ come die on that cross so that we could be made right with God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are, beloved, we are God's children. This is mercy and this is love. The illustration that basically sums up everything that we've just read in these first five verses is this, is that you, apart from Christ, or if you are in Christ now, remember those days when you were outside of Christ? Is this, that you were dead and you were in need of life. You can picture a corpse at the bottom of the sea. <clears throat> The picture that we see in verses 1 through 5 isn't this. This isn't you clinging 
onto a piece of driftwood floating at the top of the sea, still alive, but yeah, in need of a little bit of help. This wasn't you sitting inside a rowboat just rowing going, man, God, there's nothing bad here. I'm just clipping along. I don't really need any help from you. This is a picture of a corpse, dead, rotting, being tossed to and fro by the currents of the sea. You are awash, consumed by the waters of judgment and sin, and there is not a spark of spiritual life in you. You are at the bottom of the ocean, and the raging waters of sin and judgment have consumed you, and you are just a piece of nothing anymore. You're just a corpse adrift at the bottom of the sea. There is no life in you at all. And what the picture that... Paul paints for us as this, is that God, with a mighty arm of salvation, plunges his arm into the water of sin and judgment, grabs us by the shirt collar, and brings us up above the waters of sin and judgment, and he breathes eternal life into our soul. God acted in love toward you and I and made us alive together with Christ. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, even in our spiritual deadness, made us alive. And he takes all of this, trims it down to six words, and says this, By grace you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. It's not because you were lovely you have been saved from your state of spiritual death. It's not because you're awesome. It's not because you're a Republican or a Democrat or black or white or rich or poor or well-educated or not so well-educated or live in the right part of town or live in the bad part of town. It's none of these things. By grace, the unmerited favor of God that you have been saved. So the question I have for you is this. Have you been saved by grace? Have you been saved by grace? Not, hey, I think this person on the front front row I was talking to earlier, they need to be saved by grace. Or, man, my, my grandma, this, she could probably use this message. That kind of, I'm asking you to trim out all of the things and ask yourself this question. Have you been made a child of God because you have been saved by grace? Have you been rescued from your state of spiritual death by grace? What foundation are you resting on? Like if you were to take that word grace out of that sentence, by blank you have been saved, what are you resting on? By religion you have been saved? By being Protestant you have been saved? By being Catholic you've been saved? By going to church you've been saved? By being a person who prays you've been saved? By being a U.S. citizen you've been saved? Because of your parents' faith you've been saved? Because you have Bible knowledge you've been saved? Because of theology you've been saved? Because your spouse is a Christian but you're not, you're saved? Because of your roommate's faith? Because of just church tradition? Like what are you resting on? Because Paul gives one pinpointed answer. The hope of salvation, the good news of the gospel is this, six words, by grace you have been saved. That is the hope of you moving from spiritual death into spiritual life. This is the good news of the gospel. The gospel makes you a child of God You no longer are a son of disobedience or a child of wrath, but because of the gospel, when you recognize this reality that I need to be saved by grace and I cannot do anything, so Jesus, I cast my hope on you. I respond to you in faith. I trust you that you alone were able to make me alive because you yourself were made alive. You defeated Satan. You defeated sin. You defeated death. My trust is in you. My only hope is in you. My, my, my life eternally is resting in you. The scriptures come along and say when you respond in that way, you move into a new family adopted as a son and daughter of God. Paul gets this, and he says so in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. He recognized the need for the crucifixion to be applied for him. 
He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He recognized this, that he's a new creation. This isn't like Paul 2.0. This isn't like old nasty Paul sort of buffed and polished up a little bit. This is Paul who's had the complete inward guts of himself ripped out and completely replaced with somebody new. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, this day-to-day living, I live by faith. I live it by trusting in the good news that the Son of God has made me right with the Father because what? He loved me and gave himself up for me. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died so that you could be brought into the family of God. And when you respond to God by faith, trusting in this, God adopts you into his family. Lastly, and a lot more quickly, the gospel brings us into God's family. So when you go and you look at verses 19 through 22, Paul is basically, I mean, I commend you. Like this afternoon, there was just too much here. We, we necessarily had to trim this thing down because there was just so much going on in Ephesians chapter 2. That's why we did the first five verses and the last couple of verses, 19 through 22. But all the stuff in between that we're skipping over, I mean, it is glorious. And it is worth your meditation. We just don't have time for this. So we've got to move on to verses 19 through 20. So what Paul is basically saying is this. Because the vertical aspect of the gospel has made you a child of God, it necessarily means it brings you into something bigger than yourself. So if you were to stand up and go, my confession is this. I am now a child of God because the gospel has made me a child of God. If this is true of you, stand up. And people start standing up all around you. What the Bible does not call us to is like, okay, that's good for you, good for you, and good for you, and good for you, good for you. Now, you just go off and do your individual thing, and you go live your life over here. And if you want to meet with me, that's sort of good, but we don't be too committed to each other. You guys just, we just need to be a bunch of individual people who have our vertical identities rooted in the gospel, and we're just going to anchor ourselves there. But Paul says, no. Because you have been made a child of God by the gospel, it necessarily enfolds you into something bigger than yourself. And he just gives three simple illustrations. It makes you a citizen in God's city. It makes you a member of God's family. It makes you a building block in God's new temple. This is, this is what he's talking about in verses 19 through 22. He's saying this, because you have been redeemed by grace, you have been saved by grace, you have been saved by grace, you have been saved by grace. It necessarily means this. We are now a family of people drawn into something bigger than ourselves because we have this one scarlet thread that ties us together. I mean, if you just take just look around this room. This isn't in a club of exclusivity where we're all cookie cutters of, our, of each other. Like, you guys aren't like me, and I'm not like you. We're all different in some way. The world looks on the outside in and goes, who is this motley crew of doofuses? Look at these fools. You have Republicans sitting next to Democrats. The world looks on that and says, "Them's are fighting words. But inside the church, they're not. We have people who are very smart in here and people that are not so very smart in here. The world says those are dividing lines, but inside the church, it's not. We have people in here who make good money and people in here go, man, I wish I had money. The world says those are dividing lines inside the church. It's not. Black and white, dividing line inside the church. It's not. Men and women coming together living life as brothers and sisters of the same family of God. The world says those should sometimes be dividing lines, but inside the church, it's not. Why? Because we're bound by something greater than the world could ever understand. And it is this, the grace of God which has saved you. That is the one reality in your life that binds me to you. And because that is true, then now I can have a relationship with you and bump into you and interact with you and love on you even when we have our differences. Why? Because of Christ and what the gospel has done in freeing me from having to divide by lines that don't matter. The gospel brings us into God's family. So how do we apply this? Just because this reality is true that the gospel makes us 
vertically right with God and necessarily folds us into something bigger than ourselves doesn't mean that's going to be easy, right? I wish we could sit down and have conversations because most of us said, man, I've given this whole family thing a shot. Like, I've been floating around the church, and I've, this hasn't gone well for me. But see, I think where we often draw the line and say, because family life with other Christians is hard, therefore I'm going to hands off. The Bible says that's actually the beautiful thing about family life being hard is that it actually, because it's hard, it draws us closer to each other. See, community is tough. Family is tough. God's family is made up of dysfunctional saints who still sin. God's family isn't a club of exclusivity where everyone looks the same, acts like you, and thinks your thoughts. It is bound to happen. You're going to say something, someone's like, bro, I didn't like that. What do you mean you voted for that guy? Don't you know? How come you're spending your money on this? Like, I don't have hardly like a... You hurt me with those words, don't you know? We are a dysfunctional bunch. But that is the beauty of God's family. The reality of God's family, this community, this little body of believers known as Delta Church, this reality is ripe for disaster and heartbreak to take place. And intentional community with God's family requires commitment. Community with believers is messy. Intentionality to walk in this family is very inefficient. I mean, just think about it. Think about how inefficient it is, how inefficient of a thing it is that I'm inviting you into rooted in the scriptures. You go, I've got this problem. I can fix this problem on my own like in five minutes is the lie that we tell ourselves. Like, I don't need other people in my life. If other people get my life, I have to tell them my story. They're going to be asking me questions and giving me calls and inviting me for coffee and want me hanging out with me. It's like, you know, ain't nobody got time for that. So what do we want to do? We say this, community stuff, that's great. I'm going to come over here into the corner. I'm going to fix myself. It's, it's, it's high. God's way of growing you as a believer is just horribly inefficient if you think about it. But it is God's ordained means for you to actually grow as a believer. So that when you step into community, when you commit to a local body of believers, and I'm talking now more along the lines of membership, saying, okay, because this is true, it necessarily means I've been wrapped into something bigger than myself. What I want to do is give myself in commitment over to you and over to you and over to you and over to you and over to you. Why? Because you have this same vertical reality that is the banner of life over who you are And I want to bump into you so I can see how you work and see the gospel apply to your life. And I want you to know what's going on with me. So when you see me falter and fail and apply the gospel to my life, we're mutually encouraging one another and growing in the gospel. The reason why I need you to be here on Sunday mornings is so that when my soul is downcast and I don't feel like singing, I can hear you who has a soul that is not downcast, at least for this week, who comes and is just declaring the gospel in song so that I can go, yes, you are are ministering to me right now. That is why I need you to be in my life in community groups scattered is because I'm not going to air all my dirty laundry to you on Sunday morning. And I need a place to where I can go, brother, life is kicking me in the britches right now, and I need somebody to come along and help me. Will you walk and apply the gospel and proclaim the the promises of the gospel with me? Yes. You're, You're willing to commit to this, to make this a priority in your life? Yes. Good, because I'm willing to make this a commitment in my life because this is a priority for who I am as a gospel, a gospel believer. But the reality is this, that there are stumbling blocks to living this out. Stumbling blocks like pride. Pride keeps us from committing ourselves to one another in the family of God. Selfishness. Lack of intentionality. But there's at least two stumbling blocks that keep us from living out this reality. And they are shame and they are conflict. See, shame is one reason we stay away from God's family. Shame, you know, you do something that you don't want others to know, so what do you do? You go hide in the corner. 
Shame. See, shame says, listen, man, no one really wants to know the real you. Go hide and come back around once you fix yourself. Shame says, if you actually tell the people that you struggle with that sin, just wait until they hear that. I mean, that's just like a, that's like a tweet. That's a Facebook post waiting to happen. See, shame comes along and lies. It's a tool of the enemy to be used as a stumbling block to get you to not press into community, into the family of other people who have been redeemed by the gospel. Shame says, hey, fix yourself, and once you've fixed yourself, then you'll be acceptable. I mean, this is the whole point of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? In Genesis chapter 2, they are naked and not ashamed. Then God says, don't do this. And they're like, well, the, the, you know, the Satan, the serpent, the serpent over here is saying it's not that big a deal. Well, we'll just trust Satan's lie over your truth, God. Then what happens? Boom. They're woken up. They realize they are naked. They realize there's some shame with this. And so how do they try to fix themselves? They don't go bolting right into the presence of God. They go over to the corner and try to fig, fix themselves with fig leaves. Like that's somehow going to make God go, well, I have no idea what just happened. Your shame is no longer on display. Who in the world knows what's going on around here? But that is the insanity of sin. Shame comes along and says, don't press into your family so that they can apply the gospel in your life. Go run in shame and fix yourself. See, the temptation of shame is to, is to hide and to try to fix yourself with these weak individualistic attempts these fig leaves that you're going to try to apply to your life, but the gospel comes along and beckons us to recognize our shame has already been covered by Christ. The shameful thing that you did that is causing you to hide from community has already been placed on Christ when he died on the cross and he has already bore that sinful, shameful thing that you did on the cross. And so now what you can do is this. Go, man, I can't believe I bought into the lie of sin. I am so ashamed. And then the gospel of grace comes along and says this. Don't tuck tail, hide in the corner and try to fix yourself and cover your shame with fig leaves, but recognize this. That sin has actually already been put on Christ Christ, so what you can do is step into community, run to the family of God and go, brother, I, I, man, I don't know what happened, but I, I, I tripped, I fall, I fell, I, I bought the lie of Satan here in this moment. I'm so, I'm so ashamed. And in that moment, someone can come along and go, brother, see the cross? Don't lose sight of Christ. Remember the gospel. It's in that moment someone will come along and the Spirit will remind them to say, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And it'll be that thing that is going to be like an arrow that pierces your soul, that, that arrow of grace that just cuts through the shame. And here you were trying to, to fix your own condemnation and trying to fix your own shame and trying to fix your own guilt over here, but what you needed to be was in the community of the body of believers so that someone could turn your eyes to Christ and proclaim the gospel promises that we find in Scripture. The other thing is this, is conflict. Conflict often keeps us from walking in the family of God. All of us have walked through conflict. All of us have had fights or arguments or those uncomfortable, awkward situations and for the high majority of us, we hate conflict. We, we avoid conflict like the plague. Some of us are so passive-aggressive because, we, you know, it's like, well, you know, I really don't like what they're doing, but I don't want there to be conflict, but I really don't like what they're doing, so I'm going to really show them how much I don't like what I'm doing by being really passively aggressive toward them. Like, right? It's just a really ate-up scenario if you think about it. And so in this family of believers, you must know this, there's going to be conflict. You're bound to be disappointed at some point in time due to someone else's actions again. I mean, it's going to happen because we're dysfunctional. We're still growing in grace. But many decide this, that walking faithfully in God's family is not worth the pain and hurt. So what they do is they seek to avoid conflict by just going to another church or another community group or they just simply withdraw altogether, right? I mean, you've seen this. The person's like, what church are you in? This one, where were you at before that? I mean, like, and then you listen, they've been, they've been at five different churches, but it's, it's like within like a year, two year, three year period, and you're like, what in the world's going on? This is this. 
the honeymoon period wears off. They encounter conflict, and instead of pressing in and seeking gospel application, experiencing the grace of God in that moment, they're like, man, I don't want this. And so then we go. But the constant variable that happens in everyone's life is this. You're there everywhere you go, bro. You're like, you are the reason why conflict's happening because you're there. So you leave this church and you go to another one. It's not like that's some like mystical Shangri-La where no conflict happens. You showed up, and so conflict's going to happen. Or what we do is we just we stick around in the body of believers, but we just sort of fringe it out to the outer edges. If I get too close, I might say something. If I get too close, they might offend me. If I get too close, if I get too close, ah, nah, it's just messy. No conflict. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to hang on the edges, and nobody knows you. You're just like a bit of an enigma. But the answer isn't found in fleeing and hiding or withdrawing. Oddly, the answer to conflict is found in pressing into the very reality that is causing conflict. One thing that we can learn about the Christian life is this, that it's extremely paradoxical. The one thing that's causing conflict in your life are other Christians. What's the answer? Run to those very Christians who are causing you the conflict. The family of God. Ah, it's so dysfunctional. What's the one thing you need? Family of God. Don't withdraw yourself from the means of grace that God has given you as a child of God, which is the family of God. Because it is within the confines of the family of God that the gospel is experienced and known and we grow in. You see this in Hebrews chapter 3 and you see it in Hebrews chapter 10. So conflict in the church, family, it's a universal reality. But hear this last truth. The power of grace should be transforming us in such a way that we see reconciliation as being truly better than holding a grudge when we live inside the family of God. So how do you respond to these things? I think it's in a couple of ways. For some of us, we need to respond this way. It's not an issue of conflict, and it's not, it's not an issue of you being selfish or prideful. It's not an issue of you um, operating with shame towards other believers because the reality is this. You're like, man, you, you had me in the first five verses of Ephesians chapter two. Like, I'm not even a believer. Like, when I withdraw the word grace from by grace you've been saved, I'm withdrawing that. Like, I'm relying on everything else to be saved, to be right with God other than grace. And so the way you respond to this time of response in light of the proclamation of the scriptures is like, you need to find somebody and have a conversation. Like, this, is, this response time isn't just for believers. This response time is for you to come and, and respond in a way that says, God, here is the reality. I am verses 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, and I need somebody to do something about it. And my only hope, according to Scriptures, is this. Jesus Christ is the one who can do something about this. So your response is repentance, turning from your sin, and stop trusting and resting in yourself and fleeing to Christ as your only hope of salvation. For some of you who are believers here, it might be this, confession, talking to God, recognizing, yeah, man, I've got, I've got the vertical going on. I am a child of God because of the grace of Jesus Christ. By grace, I have been saved, but I have not recognized the implications that this vertical relationship with God has works itself out in something bigger than me, and I haven't quite been doing that well. This isn't a moment to beat yourself up. It's a moment to run to the very God whom you love. And to trust in the rest that there is great mercy and there is great love found in God. And it's to go, God, what, what is the next step for me? Find somebody and talk. Seek counsel. Go to your community group leader. Find me. Find some of the other pastors. For some of you, it's going to be stand up and it's just going to be worship and light of the gospel. But one last way that we can respond is by taking of the Lord's Supper. When we come together as a body of believers what we do is we, we come together to, to take the Lord's Supper, and it's the right way to respond to the preaching of God's Word. When you come and you take that little cup of juice, when you come and you take that, that little piece of bread, what you're doing is you're, 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 you're making a speech. You're making a proclamation. What you're doing is you're talking to people, and what you're saying is this, that that blood represents the blood that was shed Christ when he was on the cross. That, that little piece of bread, when you break it, when you crunch it, and when it gets just torn and, 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 and mauled up in your mouth, what you're saying is this, that Christ's body was broken, Christ's body was bruised 
on the cross. And what I'm doing is saying, hey, world, this reality is true, that when Christ's blood was shed, when his body was broken on the cross, this reality is true of me. It did something to me. It made me right with the Father because I've responded in repentance and faith to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. By the blood of Christ, I have been brought near to God. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a way for you to respond. If you have been born again, the Bible says, if by grace you have truly been saved and you've responded to that with faith, this is a time for you to respond. If you are not a believer, we ask that you don't come to do this because the realities of what these things are talking about really are not true of you, and it would be to proclaim a lie. But that doesn't mean you have nothing to do in this time. There is a way rightly for you to respond as well. And we ask you and we call you to respond rightly to go, there's a reason why I'm not doing that. What is that reason according to scriptures? And it's everything that we've been talking about in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. So let's pray. I'm going to invite you to respond accordingly to how God is leading you. Our brothers are going to come and lead us in worship. And we'll be done. So let's pray. God, you are good. And we thank you for... The Word, the Word of God. For in the Word of God, we see Jesus Christ Himself because Jesus is the Word of God. Father, for those who are not in Christ, for those who are not saved, for those who cannot say, by grace, I have been saved, I pray this would be a time they respond that they would be saved today, that they would find somebody and seek out to have a conversation, say, help me, open up the scriptures, talk to me so that I can see the realities of, of what Christ has done for me. For those of us who just need to be encouraged to to stop using conflict and and shame and pride and selfishness as excuses to stepping into and embracing and walking in full disclosure in the family of God, God, I pray that you just do a great work in them. God, hear our prayers, hear, hear our petitions, hear our songs of worship even now as we seek to respond rightly to you in light of the scriptures. In Christ's name I pray, amen.